You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, I think we all would agree that our words are very powerful. But I I tend to think that what makes them even more powerful or gives them more weight is the person behind those words. For example, if a stranger criticizes you, it will impact your life for a couple of days, weeks, maybe even months. But you'll soon forget what they said and who said it because, after all, you don't know that person. On the other hand, if a friend or a family member offers praise or criticism, those words can either crush you or strengthen you for a very long time, maybe even impact the rest of your life. Why? Because you know the person behind those words. November 1989 was one of those moments for me as most of my family was huddled together in our living room as a tornado unleashed its destruction down Airport Road into the heart of Jones Valley where my family was living at the time. And I can remember it just like yesterday, huddled together with my mom and my oldest sister as we listened to the freight train noise of the tornado that many of us are very familiar with and also heard the windows all throughout our house exploding as the tornado went right by our house. My father wasn't there at the time um, because he got held up at the hospital where he was working. And so he didn't come home until after midnight, long after me and my sisters were already fast asleep. But it didn't stop my dad from coming into my sister's room where we were sleeping and bending down to me and whispering, hey son, I will never let you go through this alone again. As you can imagine, as an eight-year-old, Those words were words that I held on to very tightly. If a stranger had said those words, I'd have probably laughed at him. But on top of that, I would have never believed them because I don't know that person. But you see, because I knew my dad, he was not only my flesh and blood, but because I knew his character, that that he loved me, that he cared for our family, that he wanted the very best. I held on to those words and I believed that they were true, not only as an eight-year-old kid, but even as a, a teenager. But they're also words that have been etched in my mind to this day. And I'm sure that many of you in this room can relate to a similar moment. Hopefully in different circumstances, but a moment nonetheless where maybe a teacher, a coach, a parent, or even a youth pastor, because we know they have the greatest advice to ever give, um, newsflash, but they impacted you with the words that they had to say to you. And when you heard what they had to say to you, you embraced those words because ultimately you knew the person and the character behind those words. You knew that they cared for you, that they loved you, that they wanted the best for you. And they weren't afraid to tell you the hard truth, even when you didn't want to hear it. And just as God has allowed people in their words to impact our lives, I would suggest to you this morning as believers, there should be no greater words that shall lead and direct our path in the very words of God. God's word should absolutely impact the life of a believer, not just on how you worship or how you pray, but it should impact every single part of your life, how you work, how you study students, how you play your sports, how you talk. It should impact every area. Why? Well, it's because the word of God reveals to us the character of God, which leads us to walk in obedience to his promises and commands. Let me say it again. The word of God reveals to us the character of God, which leads us to walk in obedience to his promises and his commands. 
See, what happens so often, maybe in a Christian circle, is we want to somehow try to separate God's character and God's attributes away from his word. But you can't do it. They go hand in hand. See, what happens is when I dive into God's word, the character of God, who my God is, is revealed to me. That the creator God, sovereign God of the universe, who has called me out and given me a name and given me existence, I see that he is good, that he is loving. He's just, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's abounding in love. He's all powerful God who is mighty to save. And because when I dive in his word, I know who my God is. I can continue to dive in it day after day and I can apply his truth, his commands and his promises and I can make much of the God who has saved me and redeemed me and set me apart. And this morning, I, I wanna ask you a question. Do you understand the power of that statement. Do you understand that the creator God of the universe who knew you before your parents even knew you, as you can know him. But on top of that, as you dive into your word, you can know his character, which means that when the world says that God is a cosmic killjoy, that he doesn't want you to have life and he just wants to ruin your life, you can say, absolutely, that's not true because my God who is revealed to me in his word says, he is the way, he gives me the abundant life, he gives me hope, he gives me joy, he gives me peace, and that's nothing that the world knows anything about or can offer. It's amazing and a powerful statement, and if you agree with it, it means that the word of God is simply more than just another book that fills maybe some of the downtime that you have, but instead it takes the utmost importance in your life because it is the inerrant, living, active word of God that reveals to us the greatness of our God, that reveals to us his plan, that shows us the richness found in our God and what he demands from his people. So no, this cannot be just some other book that you use to fill your downtime with. But rather, it should be what you, when you pop up out of bed, you run to and you see what God has called you to do or who your God is. And this week as I was studying, I was convicted by this statement, my time and attention to God's word reveal how much I truly value his word. And I'm going to say it again because it's not in your bulletin, but my time and attention to God's word reveal how much I truly value his word. So let's just cut to the chase. If all you do is come to God's word on Sundays or Wednesdays, are you occasionally can squeeze it in? Because after all, we are so busy. So I, I kind of fit it in one time this week. Let's just, let's just call it what it is. It's lip service. It's nothing more, nothing less. Because after all, my time and attention shows myself and others how much I value God's word. With that said, this morning, I, I want to call us back to the importance of fixing our eyes on God's word. Something that we see Moses and Aaron had to do time and time again as they heard the very word of God being spoken to them. Even in the midst of having to go before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Exodus 7. Exodus 7. And if you remember, as we closed out chapter 6 last week, we left Moses. He's confused. He's maybe doubting what God has called him to do, and he's wrestling with his inabilities. Even though just before the end of chapter 6, we would see that God points Moses and Aaron back to their genealogy. One might think, man, that's a weird place to put a genealogy. It seems to break up everything, but really it isn't. 
Because what God is telling Moses and Aaron is, I know your roots. I know where you've come from. I know your family line. And guess what, Moses and Aaron? I've called you out for this time, for this place, to work my purpose. Somehow, though, we see at the very last couple of verses of chapter 6, Moses still doesn't get it, and he's confused, and he's having this conversation with God, and he tells God, hey, listen, God, um, I don't know if you remember those people that you called me to deliver. Yeah, those guys, well, guess what? Um, They won't listen to me. But on top of that, they're turning to the very one who has enslaved them, Pharaoh. So not only, God, will your people not listen to me, but how in the world is Pharaoh going to listen to me? Because I am a clumsy speaker. I am a man of unclean lips. And this is where we pick up in Exodus 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And can I just say something about verse 7 because we're not going to address it again. Um, don't let your age think that God doesn't want to do something in and through you. But, but I want us to stop here because there are two things that I want to make sure that you notice in the lives of Moses and Aaron when it comes to God's word that also should be very true of our lives as well. The first thing is something that God does in our lives, and the other thing is something that God demands and requires from his people. So the first thing that God does is God equips us in the midst of our weaknesses to accomplish his purpose. Remember, Moses is fresh off of hearing God's God's people, his very own flesh and blood, reject him. So you can imagine Moses is confused. Moses is listening to anxiousness and that fear. And on top of that, to make matters worse, he's wrestling with his inabilities when he says, hey, God, I'm a clumsy speaker, so there's no way that Pharaoh is going to listen to me. And you would think this would be the time that God would say, Moses, this is the absolute final straw. I'm through with your excuses and you resting in your weaknesses. I'm done with you. But instead, God says something that I imagine stops Moses in his tracks because Moses, if you notice in verse 1, he says this, or God says to Moses, pay attention, Moses. I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And make sure you notice that God uses the uppercase G in God. That isn't a misprint, but that's intentional because will Moses become God? Absolutely not. But what God is saying is, Moses, I'm going to elevate you in such a way in the eyes of Pharaoh that when Pharaoh looks at you, it's as if he is seeing the one true God. Moses, you will be my mouthpiece. Moses, you will represent me before Pharaoh. So why does he do this? Why does he make Moses like God before Pharaoh? Well, you have to remember that back in those days, the Pharaoh was assumed to be one of the most powerful gods. 
to be more exact, a pharaoh many times would attach themselves to a god. And in many cases, they would attach themselves to the god of Ra, the sun god who created everything. So you have a pharaoh who has all this power and all this authority and who is viewed as a god. So he's not just letting some average Joe off the street give them their request. It's not going to happen. And so what God does is he elevates Moses and he gives Moses this authority and power so that Pharaoh looks at Moses as an equal. Many times up until studying for today, I wonder why Pharaoh didn't just wipe out Moses and be through with this guy. Well, this is why Pharaoh saw him as an equal. But it's also as if God is reminding Moses at the moment, hey, Moses, I got you. Moses, I'll I'll equip you. I'm going to work my purpose through you because remember, I've made you like God. But on top of you, I've given you your older brother, Aaron, to to be the prophet, to be the mouthpiece, to speak on your behalf. So Moses, relax. Stop resting in your weaknesses and the fact that you think that you're a clumsy speaker and rest that the one true God will work his plan through you. Start taking a step of faith and trusting me. If we're honest this morning, I think we are more like Moses than maybe we care to admit. And and here's what I mean by that. You and I, we know God's plan for us. We know even the great commission that it's really for all people to go and make disciples. We know the kingdom that we're called to advance. And maybe for some of you, you know specific steps that God has called you or your family to take, maybe with a job, maybe with money, maybe with a child's education or selling everything and going to the ends of the earth. But many times we're like Moses and that we sit back confused and we're going, now this wasn't how I had everything planned out for my life. Or we sit there and we go, we wrestle with our abilities. Well, I don't, I don't know why God would choose me. I'm not, I'm not a very good speaker. I'm not a people person. So surely he's got the wrong thing. And so we sit back and we become fear, paralyzed in our fear and our doubt and our inabilities. And what happens is every time we will never take a step of faith and the kingdom of God will never be advanced in and through our lives. And can I just say that many times I wrestle with this Just this weekend studying for this sermon, the enemy assaulted me with one lie after another lie. And he would say, Chip, you're no good. Chip, you're a clumsy speaker. Chip, how in the world will they listen to you over and over again, one lie after another? And here's what happened. Every time I would entertain that lie, anxiousness and fear and doubt would paralyze me. To the point I was ready to quit up, call Brian and say, hey, Brian, you got this. You're going to own this sermon. But let's just be very clear, that doubt, that fear, it comes from the enemy. And it's just one of his big lies because he's saying, man, if I can get them to believe that, that they're not capable, that God doesn't want to do something through them, well, guess what? They'll never walk by faith. They'll never advance God's kingdom. But then what happened is God spoke as I was praying and he said, Chip, remember, remember what I did in Moses' life and how I elevated and I equipped him? Well, guess what? I'm going to equip you. I'm going to give you my word. So just walk in obedience to what I've called you to do. Stop worrying about what people think and just trust me and take a step of faith. The apostle Paul understood this all too well in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, a passage that we know all very well. When Paul said, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content. I am okay with weaknesses and insults and hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's safe to say that at at this point in time in Moses' life, he's not okay with his weaknesses. He's not okay with his inabilities, but rather he's letting them define him. But Paul would say to a brother and sister in Christ, hey, guess what? You should boast in your weaknesses. You should boast in your inabilities and your insults and the hardships that you face because guess what's gonna happen? God is gonna show off in your life and he's gonna put his power and his grace on display. So you can't boast in yourself anymore. All you'll be able to do is say, yeah, that was God. He worked in my weaknesses and look what he did to accomplish his purpose. So one may ask, how has God equipped you for the task? Well, primarily, it's through his word. If you flip to 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we see Paul tells young Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, and you can underline the next word, equipped, for every good work. Primarily, we are equipped through the ta- for the task that God has called us to through his word. So may I ask you, what are you resting in this morning? Are you resting in who your God is and the character of God that he puts on display over and over again all throughout his word? And then he's going to accomplish his purpose. Or are you resting in your inability and your weaknesses and that you don't think you're qualified or capable? To me, to be honest, it seems kind of silly for it to be the latter after what we've just seen God do in the life of Moses. But Moses, God is not done speaking to Moses and Aaron. We see that the conversation continues and he tells them that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And even though he see they, or Pharaoh sees these signs and plagues, they won't even be a blip on the radar to Pharaoh. No big deal, just move along. And I want us to stop and deal with this very difficult passage as best as I can where we see God hardens Pharaoh's heart. After all, it is mentioned 18 times in this narrative. Nine times it is Pharaoh's doing and nine times it is God's doing. And first of all, I want to remind you that Pharaoh's heart is not some semi-soft, moldable heart. He's just waiting for God to give him a chance and he'll surrender his life to God. Absolutely not. Pharaoh's heart is already hardened because of his sin nature. Pharaoh is just like any other person outside of Christ. They are cold-hearted to the things of God. They want nothing to do with God. They could care less. So his heart is already hardened by his sin. But on top of that, we see in this passage, it clearly states that God hardens his heart. If you've flipped over with me to Romans 9, Paul talks about it. But on top of that, he tells us why Pharaoh's heart would ultimately be hardened. Romans 9, verse 16, Paul says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So how do I deal with that? First of all, you and I, we have to be satisfied, truly satisfied and believe 
that God's ways and his thoughts are much higher, much more beautiful, much better than anything you and I could possibly come up with, even collectively. They're just better. But on top of that, we can go back to Romans and see what Paul was saying. And basically, he says this, that God will do whatever he chooses to do to receive the maximum amount of glory. After all, there's no one better. There's no one higher than him. There was no one that can save or rescue his people. Only God can do that. And so God will do whatever he chooses to do to receive the most amount of maximum glory. Not just in Pharaoh's life, not just in the Egyptians or the Israelites, but Paul says, man, he does it so that the ends of the earth see that there, he is the one true God that is mighty to save. He is superior than any other God that man may make. There's nothing that compares to him. So he's putting his glory on display. And so this is how I would deal with that passage. But from there, he goes on to tell Moses and Aaron that he will bring judgment on the Egyptians and he will rescue his people. And this is where we see the command that God requires or demands from us. The word of God gives us confidence to walk in obedience to him. Exodus 7 verse 6, we would see Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses and Aaron, after hearing what the Lord would do in and through them, that he would equip them, that he would accomplish his purpose It seems to be that Moses and Aaron have a little pep in their step. They have a confidence in what their God is going to do. No longer are they worried about fear or or their inabilities, but instead they walk by faith and they walk in immediate obedience. Make sure you notice, we don't see Moses and Aaron in verse 6 going, well, they went away and they had their little holy huddle which believers really like to do, and they thought about the plan and maybe tried to tweak God's word because after all, God, you got to remember, we're going to talk to Pharaoh and we want to make sure this makes sense for us before we go before him. No, they didn't do any of that. They said, okay, God tells us to do it, his word. And so I'm going to walk in immediate obedience. And I want to make sure you don't miss this. The word of God was and is still sufficient for all people and therefore needs no added filler. And here's what I mean by that. I think many times we come to God's word and we go, you know what? if only we could just dress this up a little bit. If only I could make it more attractive. Then my friend that doesn't know Christ, man, oh, he would really grab a hold of it and he might believe. Absolutely not. Even in churches we saw years ago, they would do seeker-friendly services to make it attractive. Well, guess what? What we see in the Bible is the word of God doesn't need any filler. It doesn't need any more to be dressed up. Because it is the inerrant living word of God. What it does need, though, is the people of God to take the action of Moses and Aaron in this passage. To walk in immediate obedience and to actually do what it calls you to do. You see, delayed obedience is still disobedience. No matter how how you want to look at it. I, I don't think this is more clearly seen than when you have kids of your own. Parents, you can all agree and testify and say amen Let's just take that room for an an example. For teenagers, we know it looks like a tornado has literally hit your room. There's a a, a crazy smell coming out of of that room. Maybe if you have a younger kid, it's a playroom, and you're going, how in the world is this humanly possible for you to make this big of a mess? So you come to your child and you say, hey, listen, I need you to clean your room up by the time I get back. You come back, parents, what happens? What happens? Uh, They haven't done it yet. Surprise. 
So then you tell them again, hey, listen, you know, this wasn't like a little sweet request. This is a command. I am the authority. I'm asking you to clean up your room. They've already been disobedient. But you give them another chance and they tell you, especially teenagers, they've got this down pat, their famous words. Mom, dad, I will get to it later. And you see, while they may get to it five minutes later, six hours later, or the next day, guess what? They are still walking in disobedience. It doesn't matter when they got it done. They're still walking in disobedience to you. Now, parents, let's just play it out. Imagine the frustration that you have when they don't do it. Just think what God must be feeling like in heaven going, are you kidding me? Like, like I've revealed to you over and over again my character my plan, my promises, my commands, what I've called my people of God to be about doing. I've even given them specific steps of faith in their life to walk in, but yet somehow they want to take a step back and go, well, let's pray about this. Let's think about it. Maybe I need five voices in here and we'll talk about it for a couple months and then we'll get to it when we built a better nest egg up and it makes sense to us. And God's saying, no, 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 you need to understand that is disobedience and that is sin. I've called you to immediate obedience and praise the Lord that our God is gracious and merciful to us. But you see, the thing is, is when we have that attitude, what we're really saying is, hey, God, I know what's best for my life. And I really know the time I should do it in. You don't. You probably won't voice it like that. But that's really our attitude. That's what we're really saying. But rather our attitude and our heart should be just what Psalm 1960 says. I hurried, not hesitating to keep your commands. May we be a people, God, that hurries to God's word and go, I don't, I don't have to doubt what he calls me to do. I'm, I'm going to be about doing it. See, because we're called to be people of God that walk in immediate, loving obedience. But let's keep reading Exodus 7, verse 8. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Not only have we seen that God is the one that will equip us, that we can walk in confidence in his word and we can, he calls us to immediate obedience. But it's in this passage, we're also reminded that the word of God calls us to rest in victory in the face of darkness because our God is victorious. So God tells Moses and Aaron before they go to Pharaoh, hey, listen, when you get there, Pharaoh is going to ask you for a sign or a miracle. Let me just say, Pharaoh isn't asking this because he wants to believe. Rather, he's just wanting to be off the hook. If they can't produce a sign, get these two guys out of my face. I'm done listening to them. So Moses and Aaron do as God commanded. And when they get to Pharaoh, Aaron throws down Moses' staff and it becomes a serpent, a cobra. At this point, you would think Pharaoh maybe is sitting on the edge of his seat and he's paying attention. Because, man, they worshiped in Egypt serpents. 
They, they were very powerful in that day and time. The Pharaoh would even have a headdress with a snake on it to be a symbol of his, of his authority. But, but let's be very clear. God is not just going after Pharaoh and humbling him, but also what he's doing is he's going after every single God. And that's what we're going to see next week as we go into the plagues. And also, so Pharaoh, though, he seems unamused. He, he, and then he calls over his sorcerers and his magicians, and they really do the exact same sign. And this isn't, some, an, an, or this isn't an illusion, as some suggest, but rather this is dark magic that has demonic influence. Um, you would see all throughout it, as you studied history, the, the Egyptians were very much connected to demonic worship and to demonic influence. But I want to make sure it's very clear that you see that in this passage, these sorcerers can only come up with the same sign. They cannot reverse it. They cannot trump it. And what I want to draw us to and, and help us see is the people of God that while God still absolutely does miracles, you, you can't deny it is that as the people of God, we shouldn't define our faith by God, I just need another sign. So often we hear it, God, just give me a sign and then I'll do it. God's already given us the greatest sign, there's an empty tomb. So you don't really need another sign, but rather the people of God should be defined by the words of God, which means as we see in God's word that the enemy is a roaring lion. He masquerades as an angel of light so he can absolutely copy many of the signs. And you see it in the world. The world is very good at throwing counterfeit signs, taking God's commands and promises and putting their own spin on it. Just think about the rainbow. I mean, the rainbow wasn't meant to talk about a relationship, but rather a promise that God had with his people. Just think about the hashtag that you see, love wins. The world grabs a hold of that hashtag, love wins, and they go, oh, love wins. No, it doesn't. The world doesn't win by just loving. But the, what, when the believers talk about that, the love of Jesus absolutely wins, and nobody can deny it or resist it. So we must be careful because the world is very good at counterfeits, but soon they will fade away, as we're about to see. Because what happens next is truly amazing. Aaron's staff turns into a serpent, turns into the cobra, and it consumes all the other snakes. And at this point, you would think Moses, standing before Pharaoh, watching Pharaoh's magicians and sorcerers do the exact same sign, maybe he's tempted to just let his head fall going, great. Here we go again. But then he watches, and he keeps watching that snake, and all of a sudden the snake consumes not just one, but maybe two, maybe three or four snakes, and he goes, oh, I got it. My God is already declaring victory, even though this is the very first miracle and there's plagues to come. He's already declaring at the very start that I will have victory, that I am superior. Simply put, um, God is giving Moses the cliff note version of, of victory. And amen, adults, we can all testify. Cliff notes were amazing back in our day. I depended on them to get through school. But he's given them this cliff note version. Victory is mine. I am superior. I am greater. No other God, not even Pharaoh, will stand against me. And so may this be a reminder to you and I today that we know the one who is victorious. That sometimes when we look around and it seems that darkness is caving in, that it's about to consume us, 
maybe we look at it and we're going, this isn't how I thought things would play out, God. Or God, you had all these promises, but it seems like it's not working out. That we can be reminded and go back to his word. Not only has he revealed to his character, but that our God is victorious. He is superior. He is better. Because you see, the signs and the miracles were simply just a foreshadowing of the one to come whose name is Jesus. And now looking back on the other side of the cross, we get to see that the cross couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't, couldn't keep him. That the, the sin was defeated. Death was defeated and the serpent's head was crushed once and for all, which means you and I can have victory over the enemy, which means that the enemy has no power really unless you give him power. Because so often we want to play up, man, this enemy has a lot of power. No, he doesn't. He's been defeated. He's already a loser. He's already lost. And on top of that, you have the very God inside of you. And he says, I give you the power to resist, to flee, to not fall into the temptations, to not let the bondage of sin define you. So guess what? Even when it seems like darkness is coming on you, even when it seems like you're wanting to rest in your ability, man, fix your eyes on Jesus because he has conquered and he is superior than any other God, which means you and I, are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Paul would say, Romans 8, 35 through 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So in closing this morning, I want to ask you, who is your God? Maybe for some of you, your God is yourself or it's money or it's just status or fame, or it's that job, well, guess what? That God will not stand before the one true God. There will be a point in time that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I urge you that today can be the day of your salvation because you can know the God who has loved you and sent his one and only son, perfect son, to take your place on the cross so that you can walk in victory over sin and death and walk in this abundant life here and now. He's a God that's revealed his character over and over again, that he's good, that he's trustworthy, that he's loving and he's merciful. I pray that you will receive Christ today. But for those of you that know the answer to that question, I wanna ask you then, what are you resting in? Are you resting in your weaknesses and in your inabilities? Are you resting in the fact that you know who your God is and that he will accomplish his purpose through you? Are you boasting in your weaknesses or simply just having a pity party over your weaknesses because you're afraid of what will I say? What if I mess things up? Are you resting in the confidence of his word? Are you actually doing God's word? Do you love his word? Are you drawn to his word? Or is it simply something that you just see as an obligation? May it be that we walk out of here, resting in the victory that is ours in Christ. And we have that confidence rooted in Christ that he will accomplish his purpose. Let's pray.
So Heavenly Father, this morning, um, God, I want to thank you that you are God who over and over and over again reveals yourself to us. That we don't have to doubt who you are. We don't have to come up with our own ideas, but rather we just run to your word. And your word reveals to us that you are God that is mighty to save. That you are God that will absolutely accomplish your purpose. That you are God that is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in love that is faithful, that is provider, that gives abundant life, that is our hope, that is our joy. So God, may we be drawn to your word over and over again and just see who you are and may it well up within our hearts to truly worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that nothing that the world tries to counterfeit or come up with comes close to the one true living God who is constantly active in our life. So God, may we boast in you May we boast in the gospel. May we preach it over and over to ourselves. May we not get tired of those words. May we not see that the word of God is just simply something that we do when we're not really busy. But God, may we hunger and thirst for your word. God, may we hurriedly hurriedly obey your word. And so God, we pray in these moments that you would search our hearts, you would search our minds. God, that maybe for some of us, you would show us where we're just simply not walking in obedience to you. And we're not taking a step of faith because really we're just resting in our inabilities and letting that define us rather than the God who will work his plan through us. God, I I pray that maybe for some that you would speak to our hearts and our minds and you would show us that you are God that calls us to walk in immediate obedience, that you would show us maybe areas where we don't hunger for your word. And God, that we would, you would break our hearts for that, that maybe we'd spend some time sitting and repenting when we're not resting in you, when we're not seeking your face, when we're not hungering for your word. So God, in these next few moments, would you search our hearts? Father, I'm so thankful that when your spirit moves and your spirit speaks that you can take the hardest of hearts and they can't stand against you. So Lord, we ask that you would speak and we ask that if there are people that don't know you, God, that your spirit would move in their lives and today would be the day of salvation that they walk from death into life. So God, we ask that you would have your way this morning. our hearts. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.